I'm ready to one, two, three, clap. No, you didn't clap. Okay, whatever. You didn't clap either. It's not fair. It's because my microphone doesn't pick up the clap, but I say it, you know. I, I picked up the clap and now. Come with me. One, one two, three, clap. Okay. I can dance. Sorry. You can creak. You're creaking back there. Sorry. Welcome to the Bullshit Filter. We're back, baby. Yes. For yeah, all those back, people baby. who said we were dead. No. Uh, I apologize for the break in our regularly scheduled transmission. Um, it's just right. been a, a difficult couple of months. Travel, holidays, I don't know, stuff got in the way. Every time we were planning on recording, something came up. Life, yeah. Yes, life got in the way, and uh, I had to prioritize other things. But we are back. Not that there's anything big happening in the no, world. I can't we just thought think. we'd we're going to ramble for the next hour. Yeah, yeah. But for the, for those people, they were half right. We are dead on the inside. So, but we're going to do the best we can. Yeah. Uh, so, what we're going to be talking about today is what's going on in Israel, Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking briefly at the end about the referendum that just that we just had in Australia about the voice to Parliament, right? And Ray's going to be talking briefly about what's going on with the Speaker of the House in the United Relax States. Relax there, right? Yes, right, yeah. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, give or take, mm-hmm. there was uh, a music festival in near the Negev Desert. Uh, near the border with Gaza Strip in Israel, people are mm-hmm. dancing, people are partying, young, good-looking yep. people having a good time. Yeah, and I gotta say, like it, the, the footage of this is just amazing. It's like something out of a Hollywood film. Right. All of a sudden, up in the sky, they notice paratroopers, and then they notice missiles in the sky, yeah. and all of a then they're being hunted and shot and killed by. Uh, group of militants out of Gaza. Yes. It happened on the 50th anniversary of 1973's Yom Kippur War when Egypt mm. and Syria launched a unforeseen joint offensive uh, on Israel. Yeah. It's horrible stuff. Of course, we all have heard the sickening stories about the murder of civilians, uh, including children and babies, decapitations, abductions, rapes. Uh, yeah. And just a sickening of the stories of the retaliation. Over the last week alone, Israel has dropped more than 6,000 bombs on mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip, which, of course, as we all know, is one of the most densely populated places on Earth. Population yes. of Gaza, at least half of them are children under the age of 18. And Israel has dropped more than 6,000 bombs on the last week. And to put that into context... Mm-hmm. That's more than the number of bombs that the United States dropped on Afghanistan on an average year Jesus. during the right. 20 year war in Afghanistan. Yeah. Which is a lot bigger than the Gaza Strip. Absolutely. A lot bigger and a lot more sparsely populated. And that's right. just in the first week. Yeah. And of course, a couple of days before we recorded this, um, 
just before Joe Biden arrived in Israel, a hospital in Gaza where people were hiding out was bombed. Mm-hmm. Last numbers I heard were at least 500 dead. And according to journalists who have followed the Middle East for years, this is apparently one of the single biggest civilian death counts in an attack in the Middle East ever. Right. Uh, I read one journalist who's covered the area for a decade or so saying usually when there are civilian deaths in an attack, she's gone back over notes. It's like 20 dead, 30 dead, 40 dead, 50 yeah. dead. This is 500 dead. And of course, Israel blamed Hamas for the hospital attack. Hamas blamed Israel. And, you know, uh, it's important with these things, as I always bang on about on the show, and I'll be talking about this again when we get to the section on The Voice, uh, mm-hmm. when it's a very complex situation, and it's important to fall back on your, your modus operandi. Mine is... Not saying this is going to be true for everyone, but this is what has sure. worked for me for a long time. It's epistemology and heuristics, right? Epistemology, mm-hmm. how do we know what is true in this particular domain? Yeah, right. and that's because how we how we get knowledge is different subject by subject by subject. So the the way that we know something is true in science is different from how we know something is true when it comes to ancient history, uh, which right. is different, again, when it comes to issues of social justice. And it's different, again, when it comes to issues of contemporary geopolitics. Like, there are different ways that we determine what is most likely to be factually correct in each of these different domains. They all need a, a different approach. And then once you think about that and understand what the approach is in this particular domain. The next step for me is because I can't be an expert on every topic. In fact, I, I'm not an expert on anything except lovemaking. You know, if you if you want to know about lovemaking, that's true. How to please a lady, you come to me. Right. Um <laughs> and if you can't do it, Cam will do it for you. For um, feet. Sorry. But outside of that, I'm not an expert on anything. So right, what I right. do is I, I I ask myself, who are the credible experts in this domain? Mm-hmm. Now, um, usually, preferably, I like to go to bodies of experts and look at the consensus of those experts where it's appropriate. You can do right. that when it comes to science. You can do that to a lesser extent when it comes to history, ancient history. Um you can do that to some degrees with social justice. The reason I prefer bodies of people, of experts, is because with with, with any uh, complicated topic, particularly something that's controversial, you're always going to find individuals that will take every possible stance under the sun. You'll have people that are for it right. and people that are against it and people that believe that the royal family are lizards and people that believe mm-hmm. that we've been invaded by aliens. And you, you'll find... Yeah. Your confirmation bias can go anywhere to find one or two or a handful of experts that'll say what you want them to say, right? So it's kind of a exactly. that's just it's not around. a very practical approach to finding truth. So you know what I prefer to do is go to the established bodies that have a long track record that seem to be ethical, that seem to have integrity, and that seem to you know be conservative in assessing the evidence and making a call on it. Very difficult yeah. when it comes to these sorts of issues, contemporary yes. geopolitics, particularly in the moment, 
you know, yeah. uh, over a period of time when there has been an opportunity for evidence to be gathered, you can look to certain United Nations bodies, etc., amnesty, places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when, when things are happening quickly and on the fly in, when it comes to contemporary geopolitics, I tend to turn to individuals, even though I'm aware of the, the potential risk of cognitive bias there. But I turn to the individuals that I respect and I trust and I think have got a long track record of, of speaking with integrity and honesty. And one of the cases when it comes to things happening in the Middle East is journalists who have covered that area for decades um, mm-hmm. on the ground, uh, ideally, and have a good track record of speaking truth to power in these sorts of situations. And as you know, one of my go-to people, you know, when, I, when it comes to things in the Middle East and particularly American geopolitics, um, you know, I turn to Noam Chomsky, I turn to Chris Hedges. Right. Um, I'll look at what Glenn, Glenn Greenwald is saying in days gone by, what Julian Assange was able to say. Mm-hmm. Chris Hedges, in this case, with the whole hospital bombing thing, this is what he wrote a couple of days ago. He said, I covered war for two decades. This is on his um, Medium account, I think, right. one of those um, publishing sites. I covered war for two decades, including seven years in the Middle East. I think he was with the New York Times at the time. Mm-hmm. I learned quite a bit about the size and lethality lethality of explosive devices. There is nothing in the arsenal of Hamas or Islamic Jihad that could have replicated the massive explosive power of the missile mm-hmm. that killed an estimated 500 civilians in the Al-Ali Arab Christian Hospital in Gaza. Nothing. If Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad had these kinds of missiles, Huge buildings in Israel would be rubble with hundreds of exactly. dead. They exactly. don't. The yeah. whistling sound, audible on the video moments before the explosion, appears to come from the high velocity of a missile. This sound gives it away. No Palestinian rocket makes this noise. And then there is the speed of the missile. Palestinian rockets are slow and lumbering, clearly visible as they arch in the sky and then tumble in free fall towards their targets. They do not strike with precision or travel at close to supersonic speed. They are incapable of killing hundreds of people. The Israel military dropped roof-knocking rockets with no warheads on the hospital in the days leading up to the October 17th strike, the familiar warning given by Israel to evacuate buildings, according to Al-Ali hospital officials. Hospital officials also said they had received calls from Israel saying, we warned you to evacuate twice. Israel has demanded that all hospitals in northern Gaza be evacuated. Following the strike on the hospital, Hananya Naftali, a digital aide to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, posted on X, formerly Twitter, Israeli Air Force struck a Hamas terrorist base inside a hospital in Gaza. The post was quickly deleted. Like they lied about the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, assassinated May 2022 while covering a story about Israeli incursions into a refugee camp, they blamed her death on Palestinians too. Now they admit to it. Wow. So, um, you know, that look, take it, leave it. That's Chris Hedges' uh, analysis of the situation. Of course, Israel came out and said that they believe it was a Hamas rocket that misfired. Um, Biden has come out and said the Pentagon agree. Biden also says the Pentagon claims that Russia blew up its own Nord pipeline uh, into Germany. So, 
Yeah, the credibility of anything Biden or the Pentagon say about this does not rank very highly in my book. Connected to that, um, Biden is going to be addressing uh, this country, the United States, at 8 o'clock tonight. He's going to talk about Israel, uh, Hamas. He's going to talk about Ukraine and shoot one more kerfuffle, war, um, conflict going on. Where in the, with anyway, there's too many wars going on. So he will be speaking tonight. And you're right. I mean, he's already stated he supports Israel. And you probably saw this today. A, a longtime State Department official quit either today or yesterday over um, Biden's not blanket support of Israel, but something like that. He's like, I've been trying to, you know, get things. And he, he's, been, he's been upset for like 10 years. So it's not just Biden, but obviously Trump doesn't count because when it comes to foreign policy, Trump doesn't care. So anyway, so this guy is like, you know, we need to be more balanced. We need to see the, you know, whatever he's been, he's had this message and he just finally quit uh, recently. So um, a lot of people are making hay about that, but we will see what, not spin, but what tone Biden takes tonight when he addresses the American people. Mm. Well, I think we can okay. easily predict what yeah. that's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Going back to what you said, you know, and you're absolutely right, you have to consider the source. And the source is different. It's either better or worse, depending on the subject. Um, I'm assuming you watched, and I barely could because I'm a, at the end of the day, I'm a little pansy. Um, a lot of those videos supposedly put out by Hamas fighters themselves as they were going in and training and stuff like that. I mean, that stuff's horrific. And I don't want to mess with your timeline. I'm sure you've got um, things you want to present in a certain way. But uh, I do want to ask, I mean, what, when we do have this conversation, we cover these events, um, how do they possibly think that would be received by the world in, at large? I mean, they're going to get no mercy. They're going to get no understanding. They're going to rile people up who may try to be understanding or neutral or whatever. I mean, when you show yourself shooting into houses and, and, and killing people and abducting people at a concert. I mean, you are basically saying, I want to die. I clearly am going to keep up it. You know, you, Israel can do whatever it wants. It can launch another 6,000 rockets and you're not going to get any sympathy. I just wanted, have you seen any of those videos? Yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of them. Look, right. Okay, here's my take on this. Um, mm -hmm. I've had some online discussions with people. Right. The way that the media and politicians uh, and people in general tend to react to these situations is condemn the acts of terrorism and never ask the question, at least openly and in public, Right. what drives people to do things like this? What drives people to extreme acts? Yeah. And what do they hope to achieve with the extreme acts? Um, That's my question. You know, I remember after the 9-11 attacks, uh, you know, George Bush's, uh, after he didn't do anything, uh, uh, kept reading children's books and then went into hiding for a while. Um, eventually, when he came back out, like the whole response is just calling them evil. Biden's doing the same thing. They're evil. Saying yeah. that people are evil or their acts are evil is a shorthand lazy? way of it's lazy it's intellectually sorry, lazy sorry. and right. it's intellectual it's deliberately trying to avoid breaking down the behavior and why the behavior happened it's a tactic that it plays well with the judeo-christian 
audience right. who believe in such things as the forces of good and evil, and that's an easy way of not thinking too hard about it. I've also heard people on the left um, say that thinking too hard about why people commit acts of terrorism is basically academic masturbation and there's there's no point to it. And I, I fundamentally disagree. I fundamentally yes. believe that uh, if we don't understand what drives people to commit extreme acts and we don't uh, uh, try and address the root causes that drive mm -hmm. them to that, we're just perpetuating the cycle of violence. These, you know, again, my assumption, whether I'm dealing with um, Islamic militants or I'm dealing with, uh, you know, Stalin or Hitler in our uh, history shows, right. it's to assume that the majority of these people are rational actors. They have legitimate grievances mm -hmm. that uh, are driving them to do what they do or legitimate concerns. That are legitimate to them to yes. do what they do. That's right. You know, yes. people people say, "Well, you, you're justifying violence." No, no, no. They are justifying their violence with right. their concerns. And if we don't make the effort to understand how they are justifying their acts to themselves, we're a never going to learn, and b we can't do anything about it to prevent future acts of violence or future mm -hmm. acts of extremism or whatever we will understand yeah we won't understand their thinking if you will. exactly yeah and and the, so when i look at what's happening over there it, it seems to me that there is a long history of legitimate grievances that the palestinians mm -hmm. have that are constantly ignored in the west or, or paid lip service to uh, but nothing really has been done about it and right. you, you can only kick a dog so long before it's going to turn around and bite you on the ankle. And mm -hmm. if you kick a dog every day for 10 years and then it turn around, turns around and bites you on the ankle and you go, this dog is evil, I have to put <laughs> it down, Exactly, uh, you're missing the point. Uh, you're missing the point of what drives people or dogs in this case to- Yes. Yeah. Do these sorts of things. You have to look at the root causes. I mean, let me. Uh, one of our listeners, Michael Rogers, um, even though he assumed that we'd stopped doing the show, sent me this link of an Irish politician, Mick Wallace, who uh, I have to sue because he's apparently stolen my hairstyle. Son um, of a bitch. Let me play this clip of him speaking in um, Parliament.
refused to show respect for international law, the less powerful suffer the consequences. According to UN figures, 545 children were killed in Ukraine in 500 days of war. Reports coming from Gaza now say that over a thousand children have been killed in 10 days by the apartheid state of Israel. Over a thousand children in 10 days. And our EU Commission President and the Parliament President went to Israel to give their support to the Israeli onslaught against the Palestinians. An onslaught that is taking the shape of a genocide against innocent civilians trapped in an open-air prison called Gaza. The list of Israel's war crimes grow by the minute. A complete siege, incitement to genocide, forced expulsion, collective punishment, disproportionate aerial bombardment of the civilian population, civilian structures, hospitals and humanitarian workers. By offering unqualified support for this grossly disproportionate colonial brutality, the EU leaders and politicians have made themselves complicit in Israeli war crimes. Does the EU care about the human rights of the Palestinians? Basically, he's just talking about how a thousand children have been killed by Gaza in 10 days, uh, according to UN figures, and then EU politicians went to Israel to give their support uh, right. to Israel. Um, look, uh, you know, we've all seen this, particularly in Israel and Gaza. It happens in all conflicts, right? But yeah, it's like, and marriages. Uh, each side always blames the other. I do. Israel say, well, we did this because Gaza did that, or Hamas did that, and then Hamas says, well, we did this because Israel did that, and, uh, you know, their grievances are true because it's been going backwards and forwards now, well, more than 75 years. It's been going on for 100 years. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, it's a 100, oh, yeah, 100 years, um, and we'll talk about some of that history later on. You and I did... Uh, 15, 20 episodes on the history of Israel, we went on the deep. creation of Israel yeah. uh, on the Cold War show. We'll, we'll recap some of that for people who don't listen to our Cold War show. But, you know, Hamas doesn't believe Israel should exist. Mm -hmm. Israeli politicians say they don't believe Palestinians are a real people and call them beasts and savages. But we have to look at the root cause of the difficulties. And, and, and in the Cold War series that we did on this, it was clear to me, I don't know how you felt about it at the end, but it was clear to me that the creation of Israel inside of Palestine mm -hmm. was a disaster. It was supported yeah. by the UN. I think it was uh, an egregious decision. Uh, uh, but many countries at the time didn't support it. Many talked about how they were pressured into supporting it by threats from the United States. We'll cover mm -hmm. that in a little bit more detail later on. Right. And while I don't think many reasonable people would agree that after World War II, the Jews needed a safe place, mm -hmm. the way that it was handled was a right. travesty and a tragedy for the Palestinians. And that has more or less just been ignored or justified over the last 75 years. And any explanation or analysis for what happened two weeks ago, that doesn't start with that fact of the tragedy and the travesty that happened to the Palestinian people that they've been living with 
for 75 years. It's just dishonest. The narrative yeah. that says that the Palestinians are the problem, that Hamas are the problem, that they're violent, that they're terrorists, and doesn't combine that with asking the question, why are they violent? Why are they yeah. driven to Suicidal. terrorism? Suicidal. Yeah. That they are the victims of 75 years of violence and oppression, supported mm. by the West, and particularly the United States, to the tune of $3 billion a year for, for decades, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. is just being dishonest. And in the media yeah. coverage that I've seen, both online, uh, on TV, it, it you know they will often touch on the root of the conflict, 1948, and they'll talk about the 1967 war and all these sorts of things, yeah. the, the no. various accords that they've tried to half-heartedly sign. But they never really treat this honestly. Like the 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 crux of the matter, as far as I'm concerned, is that the creation of Israel and the support for the creation of Israel by the United Nations, particularly by the United States, in the mm -hmm. middle of a country that without the without the consent of the people who lived in that country. Yes. Yes. Is, it was just it was illegitimate. It was an illegitimate decision from the get-go that has never been addressed properly, right? And it's you know that's the that's the root cause of all of this. And until we can have the maturity in the West to acknowledge and look, you know, my country's still struggling as we'll get to with the voice to acknowledge what European invaders did to the First Nations people for two hundred and fifty years in this country. Your country is still, try, you know, trying yep. to process slavery and the Native yep. Americans and all that. And kind we still of stuff. fuck them over, the Native Americans. Uh, yeah, but we'll, yeah, that's for another show. But yeah, we still do it to this day. Let alone the things that were done seventy-five years ago. I mean, we're still yeah. having processed the things that happened hundreds of years ago. Um, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said last week the crux of the issue lies in the fact that justice has not been returned to the Palestinian people. Boom, right there. Always go to your enemies to find either the truth or your weakness because that's their job. That is an astute observation, and you could say fact, by a country that we generally regard as an enemy. So he's free to be honest, whereas our allies can't do that because they'll probably be punished in some way. Yeah, you say that in the West and you get called anti-Semitic, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so, but like, I, I challenge anyone to argue the argue against that statement. Yeah. You know, the the Palestinian people had their country progressively ripped away from them over a hundred years because it started premeditated. Well it was premed. It was premeditated, and we'll get they, into that later on. Okay. Yeah. Could could I just real quick because we're already talking about something that is. Vile, you know, war, children, women, innocents being slaughtered. That's a horrible thing. So let me add on and mention one more horrible thing. Uh, and I'll make this very short. About two weeks ago, I don't think it's called scared straight anymore. They used to have a policy when I was in school. They would have criminals come in and we have assembly and the, and the criminals would tell us jail really sucks. It's even worse than you think it is. Do whatever you got to do to stay out of jail. You know, it's a scared straight. Anyway, so whatever that's called now. There was one at the high school two weeks ago, and it was a little bit different. 
and I'll make this short and sweet. This guy basically said, hey, have you ever had a school shooting here? No, you're lucky. Guess what? You keep bullying each other. You keep picking on each other. And eventually one of those people is going to snap and they're going to come to school with a gun. And then you're pleading and you're begging. Isn't going to do fuck all. They're going to have a list. They're probably going to have a plan. That's what a lot of these school shooters do. And they're going to go after people. So quit fucking bullying. It was a very short uh, gathering, but it was very intense. It's kind of like the same thing here, like you were saying a second ago. These people have been fucked over for decades, for generations. It's not about winning the war. It's about, I have nothing to lose. It's about inflicting as much pain as you possibly can on Israel. And what's the best way to do that? Maybe turn this uh, 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 war into a regional war, and then other people get involved. So again, if we can't live in peace, why should you live in peace? And so I just, it just, when I started researching that, I just thought about that because Kiki came home, she was shaken because that guy, you know, that was his job. Anyway, and but she's it's a like, bully. And she's the biggest I mean, she's, bully. Uh, she's school. the worst. Yeah, she the worst. Takes yeah, off she you. makes terrible bully. She makes me cross. But the point is, if you push someone or a group of people enough, like you said, even a cornered rat will turn and bite you. Yeah, and as for like, what are they trying to achieve with this? Like, it seems to me that there's a number of things going on. Uh, but from what I've read, the the an analysts that I pay attention to, mm -hmm. the the whole uh, reproachment uh, of Saudi Arabia and Israel that was they were like normalizing, right. coming to some sort of accords. Uh, they're trying to prevent that from happening, trying to make it as difficult as possible oh. for the Islamic countries in the region to, because of the, the more that these Islamic countries around them do deals with Israel, the harder it's going to be for the Palestinians to have anyone in their corner. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, yes, they obviously recognize, as the 9-11 attackers would have, you know, they recognize mm -hmm. that there are going to be massive consequences on our own people, although in the case of the 9-11 attackers, as we know, they were mostly Saudis, and the US never invaded and bombed Saudi Arabia, so... No. yeah, We got the wrong country. Scot-free. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Someone on, someone on CNN report wrote, this is Israel's 9-11, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you get Americans feeling and not thinking brilliant move on whoever came up with that yeah and of course as with all analogies there are there are problems with that but mm -hmm. you know there i think at a basic level there is truth in that this is the first time since the creation of the state of israel that they've been invaded and attacked inside of their borders and right. uh it it is the result of their decades of generational oppression of the Palestinians. It's blowback from that, as 9-11 yes. was blowback for America's oppression of the Palestinians and yes. uh, other uh, Islamic countries. And, yeah. you know, I, I think uh, getting back to the what they expect to get out of this, I think they're trying mm -hmm. to destabilize the accords and they basically are, are trying to get people to pay attention again, you know, and, yeah. and that has worked. I mean, the the genocidal approach to collective punishment that Israel is taking and says they're going to continue to take is causing a lot of people to ask a lot of questions about, you know, how uh, Israel 
conducts itself in this area, right. what's proportionate, uh, what a proportionate response is. Yeah. And they know that a lot of Palestinians are going to suffer and die as a result of this, but they're already suffering and dying. Yeah. And yeah. so, and, and there's probably a religious aspect to this too. I heard Yuval Harari on a podcast saying this is all about Hamas believe that they're going to die and get virgins in heaven. They don't really think about this lifetime. They care about their reward in heaven. There's probably mm. an element of truth to that. But uh, all religious extremists justify their own martyrdom in similar ways. But again, I think what's driving them to this is the oppression of the Palestinian people over the last 100 years by the Jewish settlers. This place has been a time bomb well before 1948. Uh, we'll, We'll get into some of the evidence for that. A little bit later on, but you know, we're, mm-hmm. just looking at the current situation, back in 1994, you know, 30 years ago, right. when they're having peace talks in Oslo, the Palestinian per capita income at the time was 15 percent of the Israeli per capita income. Jesus, 15 percent, right? But then, peace talks sort of failed then when a member of the Jewish far right assassinated Israeli Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin. He was fatally shot in the back by a right-wing Jewish extremist who Mm -hmm. was trying to derail the peace process. His name was Yigal Amir, who's in his 20s. He opposed the Oslo Accords on religious grounds, told police that he acted on the orders of God to stop the Holy Land from being handed to Palestinians. So my point is that religious extremists are on both sides trying to prevent the peace process from happening. And despite despite the last 30 years of various attempts at uh, fake peace accords, because I don't think the United States or Israel really wants peace here or hasn't up until this point, the Mm -hmm. uh, per capita income of Palestinians has fallen and is now only 12.9% relative to the Israeli level. It's fallen over the last 30 years. It hasn't improved. So when you look at the economic uh, and the the quality of the living standards or lack thereof of people both Mm. in Gaza Strip and and West Bank, over the last 30 years, how it just gets worse, you know, the Israelis keep pushing their settlements further and further. There are constant attacks. Uh, you know, there's no real peace process. And then the Israelis just voted in a far-right coalition government under the leadership of Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a Palestinian. You, you can't have much hope for your future, your children's future. And it reminds me of Ho Chi Minh when we did our Vietnam series on the right. Cold War show. The only option for any sort of future for the for your families and your children and your grandchildren is to fight. And yeah, you know that when you go to war in Ho Chi Minh's case against, you know, the the French and then the Japanese and then the French and then the Americans, you yeah. know when you're a poor, uneducated uh, guerrilla army mm-hmm. making weapons out of sharpened sticks going against the most powerful nations on earth. A lot yes. of people are going to die on your end. Yeah. But yes. what's your alternative? Just yeah. sit there and stay oppressed forever? 
you've tried yeah. you've tried the diplomatic route. It hasn't got Over you anywhere. You right. know, in Ho Chi Minh's case, we talked about the fact that at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, he went to Paris to present a petition to Woodrow Wilson to say, please allow the self-determination yeah. of the Vietnamese people and remove the French colonialists and Pretty got close. ignored. Uh, yeah. he, he tried working with Americans over decades, mm. both to remove the Japanese and then to remove the French colonialists again, got ignored every step of the way by yeah. the Americans. And eventually they gave up on the diplomatic approach and resorted to violence, right? That's what happens yeah. when diplomacy doesn't work. And the Palestinians have been trying diplomacy for decades uh, and it's been getting back right back. I remember yeah. when I was a kid with Arafat and the PLO and all that kind yeah. of stuff, right? They yeah. try. They've tried diplomacy. It hasn't worked. Uh, when you try diplomacy, uh, Fidel Castro tried legal uh, approaches to get yeah. rid of the Batista regime di dictatorship in, in Cuba. Got arrested, exactly. thrown in prison. Yes. Um, yeah. You know. So eventually, when, when you try the diplomatic or the legal process. And it yeah. doesn't work, and you give up all hope of that ever working. Violence yeah. is the last option; it's the final solution, right? Yeah, and and I think people forget sometimes that the whole point of diplomacy is to avoid war. So if you're not either willing or able to engage, like you said, what's left? Um, there was, hold on for a second. Um, as far as I know, tell me if if this is a stretch, and I don't think it is. If this latest attack, war, conflict, uprising, whatever you want to call it, had not happened, I imagine for the for the Israeli government and probably for the Israeli people, they just kind of pictured the way things are now, yeah, just let it go for another 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, there was as, as far as I know, there was no plan to ever make things better in the in the border uh, Gaza Strip. There was no plans, there was no Whatever I mean, this was just the way they were supposed to live out their lives. So, well, the, the yeah, uh, the far right Israeli yeah. approach. And look, uh, I know there are a lot of people in Israel who disagree with the yeah. far right, who disagree with the approach of Benjamin Netanyahu, who dislike Netanyahu. It took him ages to try and win another election. Um, yes. you know, they took them ages to be able to form a coalition government over there. They keep having elections and keep having elections. So, like, I'm right. not painting all Israelis with uh, this brush, obviously, but right, uh, you know, the 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 approach of the far right over there, uh, particularly Netanyahu's um, position, has been: if the Israeli, uh, sorry, if the Palestinians give up all of Hamas and all of their weapons and all of their guns and all that kind of stuff, then we can negotiate. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and they're not going to do that. Sorry. They, they see that for what it is. Why would you treat us fairly today when you've never treated us fairly in the last right. 100 years? Yeah. Uh, getting Keeping on the economics here, I want to press yeah. on this point. Yeah. Today, Gazan per capita income is less than a third of that in the West Bank. Almost half of the labor is unemployed. Over half of the right. population lives below the national poverty line. Mm. It's apartheid. Now- uh, again, if yeah. you call it apartheid, a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in the West object to that. They call that anti-Semitic, bloody, bloody, blah. But it's mm -hmm. not just me saying it. In a 2022 <laughs> report, Amnesty International said it analyzed Israel's intent to create and maintain a system of oppression and domination over Palestinians, including yeah. through 
quote, territorial fragmentation, segregation and control, dispossession of land and property and denial of economic and social rights. And Amnesty concluded, this is just last year, this is apartheid. Yeah. So walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Sorry. Go ahead. Gaza is, by the way, about 137th the size of Brisbane. Right. Brisbane has a population of about 1.3 million people. I'm talking about the Brisbane City Council area. Mm -hmm. Gaza has 2 million people in a land area 137th the size of Brisbane. So when Israel say, as you'll see on the news, uh, and you'll see this from the US State Department and Biden as well, Hamas Mm -hmm. are hiding in civilian zones. They're hiding behind civilian shields in civilian areas. As opposed to what, motherfucker? No fucking kidding. It's all a civilian zone. There are 2 million people trapped in this tiny little pocket of land. It's all civilian areas. Elbows to nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. And then when you hear Netanyahu like say things like, these are some quotes from him, beat them up, not once but repeatedly. Beat them up so it hurts so badly until it's unbearable. That's his strategy towards Palestinians. By the way, this came out Mm -hmm. um, a while ago too. If you've ever heard this, there was a secretly taped private meeting videoed of him in 2001 where he Mm -hmm. says, I know what America is. America is a thing you can move very easily, move it in the right direction. Ooh, it's not wrong. No. It's not wrong. Former Israel Deputy Prime Minister Eli Yeshai said he wanted the army to send Gaza back to the Middle Ages. Now, so that, look, People in the West will say, well, Hamas says this about Israel, Hamas says that. But this is what the Israeli leadership constantly says about Gaza and the Palestinians as well. So the war of words goes both ways. But even former Israeli leaders no longer deny the the reality of apartheid. Last Mm -hmm. year, former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair called Israel an apartheid regime. He said it is with great sadness that I must yeah. also conclude that my country has sunk to such political and moral depths that it is now an apartheid regime. The Jesus. former Speaker of Parliament over there, Abraham Berg, and Benny Morris, the historian whose works we quoted from a lot, I quoted from a lot in our Cold War series, mm-hmm. among 2,000 Israeli and American public figures who signed a public statement that Palestinians live under a regime of apartheid, Early September this year, Tamir Pardo, the former chief of Mossad, he was the chief of Mossad from 2011 to 2016, said to the Associated Press that Mm -hmm. Israel's mechanisms for controlling the Palestinians match the old South Africa. There is an apartheid state here, he said, referring to West Bank, not only Gaza. But despite the fact that Israel's running an apartheid regime, the United States continues to support Israel to the hilt, giving them billions of dollars every year to continue their oppression. Until 2002, Israel was the top recipient of US aid. Then Iraq and Afghanistan and recently Ukraine have moved into right. the top levels, but it's still in the top three. Yeah. Overall, the US has given Israel over $260 billion in military and economic aid and $10 billion more for missile defense systems which Mm -hmm. don't seem to work very well. 
Last year, yeah. Biden signed off on $3.3 billion in security assistance for Israel, which was a figure that Obama had agreed back in 2016 to send to them annually over 10 years. Jesus. Obama did push back a little bit on Israel. He, you know, he, he was the first president in a long time and uh, to sort of push back. And even Biden was being a little bit cold to them up until this latest event. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, they don't really, they don't pull the funding, you know. They, right. they, they'll say they'll, they'll tisk tisk at them and wag their finger at right. them when they keep pushing their settlements out. The Democrats will, not the the yeah. Republicans, but they don't hit them where it hurts. You know, they don't condemn them in the UN Security Council. They don't pull the money. Yes. Of course, as we all saw this week, there was a vote in the UN Security Council to condemn, led by the Russians, to condemn attacks on civilians from both sides. The the United States vetoed that yes. um yeah. resolution in the security council like like seriously like Can how do you veto a resolution that condemns attacking civilians like it's yeah. just like the hypocrisy of the u.s who's been criticizing russia for the last 18 months for supposedly allegedly attacking civilian centers in ukraine mm -hmm. and then when there's a resolution in the Security Council to condemn attacks on civilians, they veto it. I mean, there's right. like zero credibility from the United States on the right. issue of civilians when it comes to Israel in particular. By the way, there was an addition of $500 million included in the US 2023 budget to go towards stocking Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Right. In comparison, since 1994, the last 30 years, the United States has provided $5.2 billion in aid to Palestinians through USAID. Mm -hmm. So Israel gets $3.3 billion a year. Palestine's got $5.2 billion over 30 years. Jesus. The, and, and that's not for weapons and arms and missile defense systems or anything like that. You know, it's like for food and humanitarian aid. Sure. The, the, the Biden administration has pretty much continued Trump's policies in this area, which effectively ignore what's going on to the Palestinians, uh, ignore you know the, the Jerusalem being determined to be the capital of Israel instead of Tel Aviv, these sorts right. of things that are you know very politically and, uh, and religiously sensitive, charged, exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, so, yeah, just like the hypocrisy when it comes to the US's position and not just the US Australia the United Kingdom etc cetera, etc cetera, all of the US's allies is is breathtaking it's breathtaking yeah. to see the hypocrisy and how they get away with it and how they don't get called on it by the media by opposition parties it's just it just sails through because nobody wants to criticize Israel because as soon as you do you get called anti-semitic and that's very hard to, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the leader of the Labor Party in the UK, criticized Israel years ago or, or didn't um, uh, condemn members of his party that criticized Israel's settlements, got painted with right. the anti-Semitic brush to such an extent that he lost the leadership of the party over there. I mean, these uh, it's very hard to unpaint yourself as anti-Semitic when the media, particularly the conservative yes. media, the Murdoch media gets hold of it, 
They're just going to bang on it. And no one reads the fine print. No one p- takes the time to pay attention to the details. Just the they just yeah. take the slander and they run with it. You can then yeah. sue the newspaper for slander. And two, three years later, when that goes through the court process, you might win a victory. But by then, it's too late. The damage has been done. Your career's it's over. Set. Move on. Yeah. They factored that in to, yeah, we'll spend $100 million on the legal process and paying a fine. We don't care. We've got rid of you. We've put somebody in place that we prefer. Or that's only a month or two of profit, so no big deal. I guess, and and, and touching on everything you just said, I think that the most disheartening thing for me is that the narrative is pretty much set in stone. Israel is the victim. Everybody else is the bad guys. And you can't say anything. You can't hedge your bed. There's no there's no room for moderation. There's no room for let's explore the history. There's no room for any of that. Stanaberry came in, did the best job they've ever done. And now the narrative is Israel is the victim. Israel's got to fight for its life. And you would too, if you were surrounded by, your, you know, all, you know, the narrative, but the point is, I don't know if I ever see that changing and until it does change, there's no even, you can't even have a conversation. Just like you said, I mean, people get you get labeled anti-Semite, but talking is not even possible. What in the hell are you supposed to do if you can't even ag- agree to disagree? I mean, that even that is not allowed when it comes to this particular topic. Yeah, it's you're with us or against us. You can like it was exactly. after 9-11. You can't have a rational conversation with exactly. people. Exactly. The same has been true about Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of things that I want to dispel. Like, um, I don't believe that America's support for Israel is all because the Jews control everything in America. Yes. Right. There are wealthy people in lots of industries, including the media and entertainment, uh, that, that, that are Jewish or have Jewish heritage, who have a, yeah. an interest in, in making sure the US continues to support Israel. I've seen. Lots of Jewish entertainment figures, uh, Amy Schumer, Sarah mm-hmm. Silverman, uh, etc., come out and uh, with with sort of angry statements on Twitter about people that are saying this and that about the oppression of the Palestinians. But right. I don't think that's there's, like there's a great book that John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt put out twenty years ago called The Israel Lobby that talks about the role of Israel in U.S. politics, mm-hmm. which is a good read. Uh, and look, there is an element of that, but that's not what really drives the West's support for Israel, particularly U.S.'s support for Israel, I don't think. Right. What what really underlies it is a couple of things. Number one, military-industrial complex. By having Israel constantly under threat from its mm-hmm. neighbors, they're able to justify that $3.3 billion a year in right. military, quote-unquote, aid that goes to them. And as we've talked about many times, particularly on the Cold War show, when the US sets aside $3.3 billion in security assistance for Israel, most of that mm-hmm. money doesn't leave the United States. It goes from American taxpayers right. to the Treasury, from the US Treasury to the Pentagon, from the Pentagon, it's a line of credit for Israel to spend with American businesses. So it just goes straight from the Pentagon to American weapons manufacturers, Raytheon, Lockwood, et cetera, but also to anyone else who's remotely associated with military equipment and supplies. 
tens of thousands of businesses in America rely on Pentagon handouts every year. Yeah. And that and they rely on that $3 billion coming in every year. That's that's easy money that they look forward to. I mean, it's a drop they in the ocean on. compared to what they get out of Ukraine or Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the Still, other major conflicts that the US gets involved in directly or indirectly, but it's yeah. regular money that they rely on. And of course, yes. the it's they're not the only people that the US sells weapons to. They also sell weapons to Saudi Arabia, who's Jesus. one of Israel's enemies. So you arm all sides. Oh. You know, that military um you know, the military industrial complex it, it makes a lot of money out of creating tension and maintaining tension in these areas. Secondly, and we'll we'll mm -hmm. touch on this when we get into the history shortly, the, the US uh, realized during the late 1940s after World War II that they needed an ally, a dependable ally in the Middle East because that's where all the right. oil comes from. They needed yeah. someone who was going to be reliably on their side where they can operate as a base out of if you know if they if Saudi Arabia ever turns against them for example mm -hmm. or if Iraq ever turned against them cuz remember for a long period of time they were supporting the Ba'ath party and Saddam Hussein in Iraq right. they controlled they controlled Iran for a long time too that turned against them eventually so they needed a reliable ally in the Middle East and yeah. they have that in Israel, they're more closely aligned with Israel than they are with these other nations. So that's an important uh, point for them, geopolitical uh, rationale, strategy. And the the third rationale, I well, look, there's also the Christian messianic rationale, which I think oh. plays a lesser extent these days than it did 100 years ago, but there are people who believe that Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, he's going to come back to Israel, and they want sure. Israel to be in the hand of Jews when he comes back, not Muslims. Um, We'd appreciate even it. though they all worship the same God, and and, and the Muslims see Jesus as a prophet. Um, right. So I, I, oh. I don't think Jesus would be unhappy with that. He'd be like, right on. Yeah, 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 you yeah, worship yeah. the same God. You're worshiping him wrong, but according to the Christians, so do the Jews. So yeah. I don't see what the big deal is, but you know yeah. that's like you're trying to talk logic to Christians there, so that's not going to go very far. Um, I think the other major reason the U.S. supports Israel is they're a proxy for a lot of things mm. that the U.S. wants to do. They've built up yeah. Mossad, the IDF, the I, uh, uh, not the ISI, the IDF and Mossad over um, decades. As mm -hmm. proxy intelligences and militaries uh, in that part of the world, so when they need somebody to attack Iran, when they need somebody to do something dodgy anywhere in that region or anywhere in the world, quite frankly, yeah. uh, I know they, a guy. yeah, they, yeah, they they can have Mossad do it, right. There's an assassination you need done of an Iranian nuclear scientist, or you need to no worries infiltrate something or, or or send a bug into a computer system somewhere. If the IDF or Mossad do it or Shin Bet do it and it gets discovered, the US have plausible deniability and arm's length. Love they can that. wag their finger and say, tisk, tisk, that's you shouldn't have we done condemned. that. That's not very nice. Yes. Yeah, we condemn in the strongest possible 
<laughs> terms, but we're not going to cut off your $3 billion. Yeah. Right. Keep, yeah. keep it up. Yeah, exactly. Right. So th- I think those are the, the, the primary reasons US, of, on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, continue to support Israel. They're a useful yes. idiot. They're a useful allies yeah. in that part of and the a, world. An attack dog. Yeah. You just made me realize that America is nothing more than a military arms hua. We'll sell to any, almost anybody. I mean, yeah, if they end up using it against us or fighting each other, whatever, we still, the check still cleared. Thank you very much. But yeah, there's no forethought. There's, there's no planning. It's just bringing in that, that sweet, sweet cash. It, it's depressing and it's scary, scary as shit. So some big questions about this attack uh, that'll lead mm-hmm. into some conspiracy theories. Uh, first one is, how did Mossad not see this coming? It's like yes. 9-11. That's the other similarity with 9-11. Like you have one of the most well-equipped intelligence agencies in the world failing mm-hmm. at their basic job, which is stopping an attack on their homeland. Right. Israel has arguably the most extensive and well-funded intelligence services in the Middle East. In the world, yeah, com- with the combined efforts of Shin Bet, Israeli domestic intelligence, Mossad, its external spy agency, all of the assets of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, it is frankly astounding that nobody saw this coming. Right. Or they did and let it happen anyway. Yes. Did you... Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. You probably read about uh, an Egyptian minister said to Netanyahu about 10 days, like, you know, something's going on in the Gaza Strip. You might want to move some troops around. Just saying, I don't know what it is, but something, something's not right. We've seen some things. We've heard some things. You want, might want to move the troops around. And and as far as I know, no troops were moved. Uh, some people were saying that Netanyahu was like, I'm not falling for that. No, no, you're trying to get me to move troops because someone's going to you know attack me in my new weak spot. Uh, it turns out that whoever warned him, and I can't remember who it is, I apologize, was spot on. What do they know? When do they know? And how do they know? I don't know, but not Netanyahu was warned. And I know you're going to say this politically, he's been in a lot of trouble lately. And suddenly he is now the hero of his country. Who benefits? Qui bono? Yeah. That's all I'm saying. It's like yeah. Bush after 9-11, doesn't matter mm-hmm. how much political division you have in a country, when you get attacked, everyone rallies around the government. And and particularly if you have a far-right guy in power who's willing to be incredibly violent in right. retaliation, but, you know, people tend to get on board like they did in the United States, and they don't care Logic, reason, the fact that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda, the fact that Al-Qaeda were, you know, the the attackers were mostly Saudis, the fact Mm -hmm. that Osama bin Laden, after the attack, said, hey, I knew nothing about it. I think it's a good thing, but it's news to me. It took me by surprise. Uh, All of that goes out the window. Nobody cares about facts and logics because they just have raging desire for revenge. Exactly. It's going to play maybe into his favor. But before I get into that, uh, you know, the, this whole idea of maybe they knew it was going to happen and ignored mm-hmm. it, you know, it's kind of a risky strategy. But to prepare an attack like Hamas did, 
a coordinated, complex attack involving the stockpiling and firing of thousands of rockets right under the noses of the Israelis must have taken extraordinary levels of preparation, planning, operational security by Hamas. How all of that went unnoticed. It's not like Mossad and the IDF don't have spies inside of Hamas, inside of Gaza, to secret police operatives, cutouts, that whole operation. The fact that all of this could go on, all this preparation could go on Mm -hmm. without them knowing about it is really, really hard to believe. But, you know, when going back 50 years, when the Yom Kippur War took place, one of the results of that was, in in a similar way, Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, had Mm -hmm. a similar sort of uh, harsh reaction, obviously, when they were, were attacked, but it destroyed her government. They, they were accused of mismanagement, of missing it. It ultimately led to her departure from politics. Her coalition right. lost seats, was unable to form a majority. So if this was deliberate on behalf of Netanyahu to strengthen his grip on politics there, it's a risky strategy. Now, yeah. maybe he, like Hamas, figure, well, what have I got to lose? We, we mm-hmm. barely formed a coalition in the first place. Yeah. You know, if this plays out well, I get to destroy Gaza, which is something I've always wanted to do, destroy West Bank as well, probably in the process, international support, like Bush got his international support after 9-11. At the end of it, you know, maybe I'll lose power, maybe my party will lose power, but we'll have destroyed the Palestinians and I will be uh, an Israeli hero forever. Yeah. History books, absolutely. Maybe, maybe that's his thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah going to win some, going to lose some, but in the end, uh, I'm going to achieve yeah. my major objective, my last great act. Right. As a poly- This is probably the last chance that I've got. He's been in power for a long time, really struggled to get it back this time. You know, yes. I can see that. Um, maybe this they missed it because they just failed. You know, I've heard some analysis say that they just took their eye off the ball. They were looking at Lebanon. They're more worried about Iran. They took their yeah. eye off the ball. Maybe it is just a colossal, colossal failure on behalf of their intelligence services. And it plays into mm-hmm. Netanyahu's favor if it all comes out well, although the, the intelligence services failing on his watch is still not right. a good look. But Bush and uh, those guys survived their two terms, even though yeah. their intelligence services also failed on their watch. The other big question, obviously, this week is how did Iron Dome fail? Iron Dome, billions and billions invested in Iron Dome, touted as this terrific system that was keeping them Mm -hmm. safe, and it obviously wet the bed on the day. Yeah. Have you read any analysis of that? There was one analyst who said it wasn't so much um, defeated as overwhelmed. Like you were saying, there were supposedly several thousand, six or seven, I can't remember the number now, uh, rockets launched, and it was it was pretty much overwhelmed, not so much um, outsmarted. So maybe that's true. And the other thing, going back to why did uh, Israeli intelligence miss this, one guy was who's been trying to talk to Hamas fighters said that they purposefully kind of laid low for a little while to kind of lower expectations, to kind of 
cool the tension between the two. And as you well know from all the, the uh, shows we've done over the, the years, to have an attack like this with lots of moving parts and a specific plan, you first do this, you do this, you do this, that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of practice. And you've probably seen the videos of the guys with the, with the guns uh, in the paragliders shooting as they're, you know, shooting at targets as they go by. There was a lot of rehearsal for this. And the last thing the analyst said was, because you know what, to be honest with you, even though they tried to lull the Israelis into a false sense of security, even though they practiced for months for this or who knows how long, um, they probably achieved more than their wildest dreams. Uh, when they were sitting around, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. However it worked out, they probably got further than they ever expected. Of course, now you and I and the rest of the world get to watch for the next couple of weeks and months. They're going to pay a price. They're going to pay a massive price. And a lot of innocent people are going to pay a massive price for their success. Uh, so that was what one analyst offered up. Hmm. But those people were already paying a massive price for doing nothing, is my exactly. counter argument to that. No, you're, ab you're absolutely right. Yeah. You spend a lifetime life suffering shit. or, yes. you know, have a short life and go to heaven. Yeah. And, and strike back at your enemy. I mean, who doesn't want to inflict pain on those who, who've hurt you? And, you know, the, the, the rationale, I'm sure at some level is, you know, maybe this will force our supposed Muslim allies to step up their game, to come to our yes. assistance, or, yes. you know, Regional the counterattack, the retaliation will be so brutal yes. that the world will finally tire of Israel's uh, yeah. oppression and will do something about it. And maybe, yes, our wives and our brothers and our sisters and our children will die, but some will survive and they and their children and their grandchildren generations from now will have yeah. independence and freedom live in peace and that's worth exactly. the price you know we've yeah, waited absolutely. we've waited 75 years for the world to come to our rescue they haven't done it so how long do we wait before we get right. hope you know we're out of hope and i'll play some conversations with palestinians talking about this a bit later on yeah right. so ian boyd who's the director C center for national security initiatives and professor of aerospace engineering sciences university of colorado boulder writing in the conversation, said, Israel has at least 10 Iron Dome batteries in operation, each containing 60 to 80 interceptor missiles. Each of those mm. missiles costs about $60,000. Yeah. In previous attacks involving smaller numbers of missiles and rockets, Iron Dome was 90% effective against a range of threats. So mm. why was the system less effective against the recent Hamas attacks? It's a simple question of numbers. Hamas fired several thousand missiles, and Israel had less than a thousand interceptors in the field ready to counter oh, them. Even if right. Iron Dome was 100% effective against the incoming threats, the very large number of the Hamas missiles meant some were going to get through. The Hamas mm -hmm. attacks illustrate very clearly that even the best air defense systems can be overwhelmed if they're overmatched by the number of threats they have to counter. The Israeli missile defense has been built up over many years with high levels of financial investment. How could Hamas afford to overwhelm? Again, it all comes down to numbers. The missiles fired by Hamas cost about $600 each, and so they're about 100 times less expensive than the Iron Dome interceptors. The total wow. cost to Israel of firing all of its interceptors is around $48 million. If Hamas fired 5,000 missiles, the cost would be only $3 million. Thus, in a carefully planned and executed strategy, Hamas accumulated over time 
a large number of relatively inexpensive missiles that it knew would overwhelm the Iron Dome defensive capabilities. Unfortunately for Israel, the Hamas attack represents a very clear attempt of military asymmetry. A low-cost, less capable approach was able to defeat a more expensive high-technology system. Again, like Vietnam, Vietnam. Viet Cong's guerrilla approach. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, lessons that exactly. have been learned. Low-cost but overwhelming numbers can overwhelm a mm-hmm. uh, uh, more better equipped, um, higher invested in military or defense system. Absolutely. And it gives their uh, highly motivated. So yeah, desperate times, des- desperate measures. All right. Can I start talking about the history of this region for people that aren't aware of it? Please lay it on them. Like most of the world's fucking disasters, the creation of Israel goes back to the British. And uh, <laughs> whilst, we think of, whilst we think of Israel as an America's creation, it's really a British creation. Now, starting in the late 19th century, some Jewish intellectuals living in Europe and Russia, guys like Leo Pinsker, Moses Hess, Theodore Herzl, uh, Chaim Weizmann, were pushing the idea that the Jews should go back to Palestine. Now, the Jews hadn't lived in Palestine for 2,000 years. To suggest they had any claim over it is ridiculous and unheard Mm -hmm. of. We we don't allow any other people to stake a claim on a land because their ancestors lived there 2,000 years ago. As, As Israeli historian Shlomo Sand writes in The Invention of the Land of Israel, and this is a quote, would anyone today consider encouraging an Arab demand to settle in the Iberian Peninsula to establish a Muslim state there simply because mm. their ancestors were expelled from the region during the Reconquista? Why should the descendants of the Puritans who were forced to leave England centuries ago not attempt to return en masse to the land of their forefathers in order to establish the heavenly kingdom? Would any sane person support Native American demands to assume territorial possession of Manhattan and to expel its white, black, Asian, and Latino inhabitants? And somewhat Mm. more recently, are we obligated to assist the Serbs in returning to Kosovo and reasserting control over the region because of the sacred heroic battle of 1389, or because Orthodox Christians who spoke a Serbian dialect constituted a decisive majority over the local population a mere 200 years ago? Right. It's a ridiculous argument, and... You know, as I pointed out to somebody the other day, somebody said, well, you know, they control the land and the Romans kicked them out. It's like, yeah, but before the Jews, other people, you go read the Old Testament. The Old yeah. Testament is the story of the Jews killing and destroying the native population there and taking it over because God told them to. So That's there right. were people living in the land before the Jews mm-hmm. who, and also we know the Jews and the Arabs, if you look at their Jewish DNA, Sorry, right. if you look at their their regional DNA, they all come from the same people. Their yeah. Middle Eastern DNA is all the same. And the Jews who took the land in the 20th century were Russians and Europeans, right? Yeah. With, with a little bit of Jewish heritage, but you know, they'd spent their ancestors had spent most of the time in, in Russia and, and various European countries for the most part. So you know, they, they have less regional DNA 
than the people who they kicked out of any. Like the whole argument is just ridiculous. And they say, well, our God promised us this land, but their God is the same God as the Islamic yeah. God. They all worship the same God. It's just a ridiculous argument. And and the fact that anyone has ever taken it seriously, including the United Nations, is it's mm-hmm. it's embarrassing. It, it, it's yeah. ridiculous and it has carries no weight whatsoever to any sensible person. Australians just voted no on a referendum just to give our First Nations people who have lived here for 70,000 years a voice in Parliament, let alone them wanting to take the land back. And we've only been here for 250 years. We, I mean, Europeans. So it's a ridiculous argument. So look, 100 years ago, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire. Actually, a bit more than 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, 110, 120 years ago. Part of the Ottoman Empire, most of it was farmland, and most of the farms were owned by absentee landlords who didn't even live in the country. Right. They lived in Constantinople, Istanbul, no, sure. in Turkey. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. But they had bought up all this land, and they had farms on there, and the farms were being worked by tenant farmers, mm-hmm. Palestinians. You know? Right. Well, then- Starting in the late 19th century, as I said before, some Jewish intellectuals started to come up with the idea, you know, there were, what happened in the late 19th century in particular, there was a new round of pogroms against the Jew in Russia, in France, yes. different parts of Europe. This is, you know, well before the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, pogroms against the Jews, I think 1886, there was a big one in Russia. They were accused of plots against the Tsar, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And they started to think, we need a, we need a safe haven. We need a safe place of our own. And, and I, I get that. I, I fully accept the, their rationale. Some of them mm-hmm. decided they wanted to go back to Palestine. And they were able to get funding by rich foreigners, because a lot of these Jewish people who started moving to Palestine weren't wealthy people. They, they oh, weren't- yes. Rich. Exactly. A lot of them were communists. They were anarchists. They mm-hmm. were, you know, people that didn't have means of their own, but they were funded by wealthy Jews who sympathized with their desire to move to Palestine. They started right. buying up land in Palestine from these absentee landlords, mm-hmm. making them an offer they couldn't refuse. Now, the Ottomans. <laughs> exactly who yeah. controlled the region, made the process illegal for a variety of reasons. One, because mm-hmm. it was upsetting the locals that these Jews were buying all the land and then kicking out the tenant farmers in lots of cases. Literally, yes. And the workers. The workers yeah. who had worked, well, that's, the, yeah, the workers and the tenant farmers who had worked these plots of land for generations yes. were getting kicked out and replaced with Jews. And also the Ottomans didn't like it because the Jews buying the land were mostly Russians. Russia was the enemy of the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of the Russians moving there were communists and anarchists, and mm. the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century, like all of the uh, empires around the world, were dealing with revolutionary movements being driven by communists and anarchists primarily. Mm. And they didn't right. want more communists and anarchists, particularly Russian communists and anarchists, moving into mm-hmm. lands the that they kind. controlled. Worst kind. But the Jews were still able to buy the land illegally anyway because the landlords didn't give a shit about the laws. They just wanted the Green. money. 
And it was in the middle of nowhere where it was easy to bribe the local officials to look the other way. So much of this was going on that by 1899, the mayor of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. a guy called Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi, wrote to Zadok Khan, the chief rabbi of France. Wow. He said that in theory, the Zionist idea, Zionist Zionism was this idea of going back to Palestine, mm-hmm. that the Zionist idea was completely natural, fine, and just, but in practice, they needed to consider the reality that the, the Holy Land yeah. was occupied by existing people, and it was recognized by hundreds of millions of Christians and Muslims, and he wrote, it is necessary, therefore, for the peace of the Jews in the Ottoman Empire, that the Zionist movement stop. Good Lord, the world is vast enough. There are still uninhabited countries where one could settle millions of poor Jews who may perhaps become happy there and one day constitute a nation. In the name of God, let Palestine be left in peace. Oh, there's an idea. What was this other main location? I'm sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but there was a, I mean, over the years in the, in the mid to late 1800s, there was another location they were serious. Some were seriously Uganda? considering. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, yeah, it's like, we'll go there. And, but, but no, when you throw in the religious thing and the person, you know, the, the Romans kicking them out, uh, I guess for some, it was payback or personal or whatever motivated them. I honestly don't know. And the Ugandans living in Uganda probably would have been happy. Australia was also considered. There were pockets of the mm. United States that were mostly uninhabited. Like Australia is very sparsely populated. There are entire regions of Australia right. that are 10 times the size of Israel that no one lives in. Same in right. the United States. You could easily put all of Israel into, I don't know, the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You could fit them yeah. down the Colorado River. It's lovely down there. Hot, you know, but, you know. But, but lovely. But lovely. Nice meals. Yeah. yeah, Idaho, uh, Arizona. Uh, Please, Idaho, for the love of God. Sorry, that's a different show uh, for the future. So already by 1899, the mayor of Jerusalem was like, cut it out. It's, this is yes. getting ridiculous. You're just going to bring pain upon yourselves. Right. Like, 20 years later, Sir Ronald Storrs, who in 1917 oh, yeah. became, as he said, the first military governor of Jerusalem since Pontius Pilate, wrote, Zionists will not admit to themselves, certainly not to the world, that the Palestine Arab has for hundreds of years considered Palestine, a country no larger than Wales, as his home. Mm -hmm. And he does not consider that there is, within those limits, room for another home to be stocked as of right from a reserve of 16 million people. The plain truth, which 20 years after the Balfour Declaration must be faced, is that the Arabs of Palestine rejected it from the first and will never accept it unless something is done to assure them their economic, territorial, and national survival. In this, they are only ranging themselves with other and far larger countries or nations, including those of the British Empire, which have Mm. long since ceased to tolerate foreign large-scale immigration, particularly from Eastern Europe. Behind the adoption of so novel a thesis by the most level-headed cabinet in the world on the recommendation of a Russian Jew, there were alleged to lurk other considerations than mere eagerness for the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. British espousal of the hope of Israel would, it was hunted, 
serve a triply out interest as well as our honor by ensuring the success of the Allied loan in America, hitherto boycotted by anti-Russian Jewish finance, by imparting mm. to the Russian Revolution, of which the brains were assumed to be Jewish, a pro-British right. bias, and by sapping the loyalty of the Jews fighting in scores of thousands on and behind the front for Germany. Now, what he says is true, but the point is, like he was writing this, you know, um, sort of after right. World War II in his memoirs, mm-hmm. um, after Britain had sort of left or were leaving Palestine. But in 1915, using their usual divide-and-conquer strategy, the British promised the Arabs an independent state in order to foment an Arab rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, brilliant. World War I, you know, there there, there are Jews in Germany fighting against the British, and they figured if we promise them something that they want, maybe they will create a fourth column and mm-hmm. support our side rather than the you know the G- Germans and the Ottomans, right? Um, so, then in 1917, Arthur Balfour, Britain's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, pledged support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, which at the time was home to 750,000 Arabs and 65,000 Jews. Wow! It's often been described as one nation promising another nation the land of a third nation. And we know the British back then, uh, like the French, were happy just to draw lines in the sand and say, okay, I now own this, you own that, and let's move all of the people in this area into there, and Bob's your uncle. It won't be a problem. All good. They They created Iraq. They created Iran. They created, you know, Syria. That's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. I mean, like a god, almost. In his diary, Churchill was writing, dear diary, today I created five countries. Yippee. Created Jordan. Yeah. My God. Yeah, now, that was a standard practice. Yeah. So one of the reasons Balfour did this, as I said, was it was a promise to the Jews in Germany to try and get them to support the British during World War One. Right. The other reason he did this was that one of his constituents was Chaim Weizmann, mm-hmm. the Russian Jew that Sir Ronald Storrs mentioned earlier. Now, Chaim right. Weizmann was brilliant. He was a Russian Jewish emigre professor of chemistry at the University of Manchester, right? Who discovered a new way to make dynamite during World War One. Now, when That's World right. War One started and lots and lots of TNT was was required, the British found out that acetone, main ingredient in TNT, wasn't available outside of Germany, mm-hmm. and it was Weizmann who worked out how to synthesize it using bacterial fermentation. He hired and paid lots of British school children to pick up right. chestnuts, which were used for the starch needed for the fermentation. Now Weizmann wow. became a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he he was he knew Balfour. Balfour introduced him to Churchill. Churchill introduced him to David Lloyd George. He right. he was a big fucking deal. Right. And Celebrate. he agreed to help Britain make dynamite in return for two things, royalties mm-hmm. right. and the Balfour Declaration. And that was a good deal for Britain. Yeah. Yes. Now, he was a major Zionist. He was the president at the time of the British Zionist Federation, 
Later on, he became the leader of the World Zionist Organization. He got the Rothschilds on board, based in London at the time, Jewish bankers. He got them on board. They were one of the parties that was funding the immigration of Jews back to Palestine Mm -hmm. and also using their influence with governments around the world to support uh, the, the Zionist movement. At the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, when Ho Chi Minh failed to get anyone's attention, uh, as did um, who were we talking about on the show recently? Um, Mohammed doing Mossadegh? Uh, no. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mossadegh. Yeah. Yeah. Mossadegh M&M too. Something? Yeah. Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> the Iranians were trying to get support for overthrowing yeah. the. Uh, the well, getting rid of the British and the Russians in in Persia right. uh, at the time, at the Paris Peace Conference, where the delegates ratified the Balfour Declaration, which mm-hmm. gave Great Britain a mandate over Palestine, Weizmann gave a speech where he said, "This is 1919. The Zionist objective was gradually to make Palestine as Jewish as England was English." And that would appeal to the to the British that. Ego stroke. But yes. that, there it is right there. Lovely. We're going to go here, here. in. We're going to take over. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be ours one day. Yeah. So as you said earlier on, and this is backed up by diary notes and letters that have survived from all of the early Zionists, they absolutely Facts. knew what they were yes. doing. Their, their yes. goal was to push the Palestinians out of the country by any means, fair or foul, and take it for mm-hmm. themselves. Absolutely. In 1922, the U.S. Congress also ratified the declaration, and Weizmann played a major role in getting them on board as well. And interestingly, in these early, you know, like in the early part of the 20th century, most European Jews looking to relocate typically didn't go to Palestine. They went mm-hmm. to the United States. Only right. 3% of European Jews emigrated to Palestine before the 1930s. Wow. 68%, about 2.5 million, went to the United States. That was the country mm-hmm. that most of them really wanted to go to because it was the land of opportunity. Palestine Absolutely. was undeveloped, mostly farms, as I said before. It was pretty rough going uh, in, right. in Palestine. Right. Hundreds of thousands of other Jews went to South America, Australia, Canada, South Africa, Western Europe. But in the 1920s, Jewish immigration to the United States was curtailed by mm-hmm. restrictive immigration acts in 1921 and 1924. Same thing was happening in Australia and the United Kingdom. Australia, we had the white Australia policy. We didn't want right. anyone who wasn't white and delightsome, as the Mormons <laughs> say, coming to <laughs> Australia. So their their options w- were reduced significantly right. during this period, and that continued right through World War II. As as you and I have told this story many times on various shows, in mm-hmm. I think it was 1941, FDR called the Evian Conference, which brought together foreign ministers from around the world to try and figure out what to do with the Jews that the Germans were arresting. Yes. And Hitler and so had said, yeah, yeah, Hitler had said at the yeah. time he would pay to ship mm-hmm. the Jews of Germany, Austria, Poland, Czechoslovakia, wherever, to any country in the world that would have them. Give me a port. He called their bluff. 
I yes. if I don't want them, we don't want them. We yeah. will ship them anywhere in the world that will take them. And so FDR called the Evian conference to get them to figure out what they were going to do. And every country in the world basically went, well, we don't want them. Not our fucking problem. Right. Uh, yeah, they took small numbers, but not millions and millions and millions, which is right. why the final solution is called the final solution, because Hitler tried everything else to get rid of them, and when no one else would yeah. take them, the final solution was the Holocaust. Uh, and famously, well, famously to me anyway, um, Australia's mm -hmm. foreign minister at the time's name was Mr. White. Right. And he yeah. said something to the effect of, at the Evian conference, Australia doesn't have a racial problem and we don't intend on importing one. And, of course, I always say didn't ask the Indigenous Australians about that, I don't think. Probably no. didn't consider them humans anyway. Uh, so the yeah. US didn't want to take them. No one wanted to take them. And then partly that was anti-Semitism around the world. Anti-Semitism was rife around the world forever, Absolutely. going right yes. back to when the Romans finally got sick of the Jews, you know, rebellions, you know, against them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the Christians hated the Jews uh, for thousands of years, and that was for a whole bunch of reasons that we don't need to get into in this, but uh, partly it was also at the time in the 30s, early 40s, because the, the world was still trying to pull itself out of the Great Depression. And right. America had recovered better than most because of military Keynesianism, uh, gearing mm -hmm. up for World War II, their entry into World War II, which hadn't happened in 1941 yet. But uh, the world was still suffering economically, and people were like, well, we, we we can't even get all of our own people employed yeah. and fed yeah. right now. We, we can't deal with a million refugees. Very much the same way as I'm sure Germany, uh, sorry, Egypt and Jordan right now are saying we can't take a couple yeah, of million refugees from yeah. Gaza. We, we're struggling as it is. We, we can't figure out how to yeah. home, house, and feed millions of refugees. Right. It was a long-term solution. I mean, yeah, it's not feasible. Yeah. It was, you know, just logistically impossible for these countries on top of the anti-Semitism that was the reality right. of the time as well. Which is now um, baked in to Western culture. So during the 1930s, Jews fleeing Nazi persecution, um, a lot of them escaped to Palestine. They increased the numbers getting there, which angered the Arab inhabitants even yes. more. And Arabs started attacking the Jewish settlers as the Jewish population climbed to half a million. So they went from, Ooh. what I said, was 65,000 in 1917 to half a million right. by yes. the 1930s. Versus seven hundred and fifty thousand Arabs. Yeah, so they're they buying were, up land. They're, yeah. they're bringing in other Jewish workers. They're getting rid of the Arab workers who are suddenly struggling financially. I mean, it is a vicious cycle now being portrayed on the Arabs, and because they're the majority, they're like, "Do we really have to stand for this?" And some of them said, "No, we don't." And this is at a time when every other country in the world was saying no to. For, for immigration in general, especially Jewish immigration. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yet the Palestinians were basically forced to eat it by the British, who had the mandate no else. For, exactly. a, for a period of time. Exactly. Uh, because they'd signed the Balfour Declaration, basically, and they, mm -hmm. they'd agree to this. So these attacks started happening. Uh, the Arabs were attacking Jews. Jews were retaliating. 
And the British eventually put a stop to the immigration for a while because it was creating problems for them in their administration of the place. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt, like all Americans at the time, was a bit of an anti-Semite. He vacillated in his support for a Jewish homeland. Um, He he didn't want to upset the Saudis, who were becoming increasingly important to the US because of their oil. Mm-hmm. He wanted to gain a foothold in the Middle East to compete with Great Britain, who, as we know, controlled the oil fields in Persia uh, right. slash Iran. And as at various times, he made contradictory commitments to Jews and Arabs. On his way back from the Yalta conference, he met with King Ibn Saud and was surprised by the depths of his opposition to a Jewish homeland. Uh, Saud told him that they should establish a Jewish homeland in Germany, which has always right. been what I thought would have been the yeah. obvious solution after World War II, was give them half of Germany to go and live in. I understand that they probably crime. didn't want to live in a country that had just killed five million of their uncles and aunties and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children, but, you know. Yeah, it's still something. It would have, it, you know, would have been easier to justify morally and ethically. He said, mm-hmm. King Ibn Saud said, amends should be made by the criminal, not by the innocent bystander. Ooh, Palestinians like did that. nothing to the Jews in World War II. Right. Why uh, they, 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 they did when the Jews started to invade their land. They they tried to defend themselves, but you know, yeah. they, they weren't responsible for the Holocaust, yet they were forced to, you know, uh, basically accept the consequences of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Roosevelt reversed his early commitments and promised Saud that he would do nothing to assist the Jews against the Arabs and make no move hostile to the Arab people. Mm. Now, FDR, as I said, was a bit of an anti-Semite. In 1923, as a member of the Harvard Board of Directors, he decided there were too many Jewish students at the college and helped institute a quota to limit the number of Jews that were admitted. In 1938, yeah. he suggested that Jews in Poland were dominating the economy and were therefore to blame for provoking anti-Semitism there. Yes. He and Hitler agreed on that. Uh, In 1941, at a cabinet meeting, he said there were too many Jews among federal employees in Oregon. In 1943, he told government officials in North Africa that the number of local Jews in various professions should be definitely limited so as to eliminate the specific and understandable complaints which which the Germans bore towards the Jews in Germany. Mm. In private, he also dismissed pleas for Jewish refugees as Jewish wailing and sob stuff. Uh, Reminds me of Truman calling Oppenheimer a crybaby. Yeah, yeah. And and I know we've covered this, uh, but again, it's worth repeating. The U.S. State Department, which of course advises presidents and controls a lot of relation America's relations around the world, right, right for the anti-Semites, uh, just absolutely convinced that they they were right. And so when FDR and then later Truman gets advice from the State Department, yeah, it's not going to be towards the Jews' favor. He, uh, FDR once said to a senator with some pride that there is no Jewish blood in our veins and characterized a tax maneuver by a Jewish newspaper publisher as a dirty Jewish trick. 
But mm-hmm. these were like th- th- this was common. Like I'm not singling yeah. out yeah. FDR here, but it's like, like people went <gasps> shock, gasp. It was people. Uh, yeah. People talked. Yeah. They were anti-Semitic, generally speaking. Yeah. And they would make Irish jokes and Polish jokes, and you know it was the sort of the standard of the yeah. era. He wasn't and these Australian days it would have been cancelled. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Think about jokes yes. about Australians. You tell a joke about an Australian, we go fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right they on. laugh harder <laughs> yeah. than the joker. So yeah, make I jokes of us because we we, we wasted everything you think is a is a <laughs> criticism. We we take it's with a, pride. Yeah, it's, it's a, a badge of, of honor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're damn right, mate. Yeah. Oh, but at, sorry. At the end of at the end of World War II, the British still dominated the area. They had two hundred thousand troops at their base in the Suez Canal, air bases in Iraq and Sudan, air installations in Palestine, naval bases in Bahrain, uh, Bahrain, damn. Arden, naval presence in Haifa, and they had eight thousand troops in their Arab League in Transjordan. They didn't want to antagonize the Arabs and jeopardize British interests, including oil from Iraq and Iran at this stage. So they mm-hmm. continued to restrict Jewish immigration after World War II, but they weren't able to stem the flow of Holocaust survivors and people coming in illegally after yes. the war. When they or did crack up. down at one point and arrested yeah. more than 2,000 Jews, the Jewish terrorist organization Ergun retaliated against the British, bombed the British Secretariat and the military headquarters at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, left 91 people dead. So it was the British fighting Jewish extremists in Jerusalem, bombing and attacking British interests, Um, not the Jews versus the Arabs, the Jews versus the British Christians. In mid-1946, Truman decided to back a plan that would allow 100,000 European Jewish refugees to emigrate to Palestine. But Mm -hmm. instead of creating a separate Jewish state, his plan was to establish a single state with separate Jewish and Arab provinces. And the Jewish leaders were opposed to that plan. So Truman had a meeting with his cabinet. Um, Acheson and Forrestal urged him to go ahead with his plan. Henry Wallace was opposed. Henry Wallace, as we know, was the guy that should have been um, president. He was FDR's uh, vice president yeah. before Truman. He was yeah. a bit of a, a bit of a lefty, sympathetic yeah. to the lefty causes. Booted out. Yeah. His diary note after this discussion, I think he was the Secretary for Agriculture at this point. He mm-hmm. wrote. President Truman expressed himself as being very much put out with the Jews. He said that Jesus Christ couldn't please them when he was here on earth, so how could anyone expect that I have any, I'd have any luck? Truman oh. said he had no use for them and didn't care what happened to them. Wallace reminded him, you must remember that it is easy for them to get into quite a state of mind because nearly all the Jews in the country have relatives in Europe and they know that about 5 million out of the 6 million Jews have been killed and that no other people have suffered in this way. Jim Forrestal had previously undertaken to say that the Poles had suffered more than the Jews. Forrestal brought up the question of the oil in Saudi Arabia and said if another war came along, we would need the oil in Saudi Arabia. President Truman said he wanted to handle this problem not from the standpoint of bringing in oil, but from the standpoint of what is right. 
Privately, in his diary, Truman made statements such as, the Jews, I find, are very, very selfish. He also dropped the N-word in a couple diary entries. But hey, again, that was common practice as well. Yeah. Yeah. But he ended up supporting them uh, largely because they came to the calculation that they needed a friendly power in the Middle East, somebody that would... Uh, be on their side. And then mm-hmm. Israel was eventually created in 1948 after the British backed out. Uh, there was the Resolution 181, I think it was, uh, the United Nations for the UN Partition Plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's the thing. Like, people, defenders of Israel like to say, well, like it or not, it was created by the UN, so we have to live with it. Of right. course- the UN has passed like 350 resolutions condemning Israel in the past 40, 50 years, telling them to go back to their 1967 borders, yes. which Israel and the United States ignore. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it, they want to have it both ways. They want to use the UN as the justification for the existence of Israel, but they want to ignore mm-hmm. the UN when it criticizes Israel and tells them to get back behind yeah. the, the green line. But the original, the original plan for the partition of the UN, uh, sorry, of Israel by the UN, obviously allocated uh, far less land to the Jewish population. It was about a equal fifty fifty split of the country between the Arabs and the the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that was rejected by yes. the uh, Arabs, both inside of Palestine and outside of Palestine. The the ones inside of Palestine didn't get a say because they weren't a member of the UN because they weren't a nation at the time. The British had just pulled out and gone, hey, not my problem. My name is Paul and this is between y'all. And they just backed out and left the place as a clusterfuck disaster. Right. Um, Now, many, many nations that were in the UN at the time Mm -hmm. reported pressure directed specifically at them Truman later noted himself, the facts were that not only were there pressure movements around the United Nations, unlike anything that had been seen there before, but that the White House too was subjected to a constant barrage. I do not think I ever had as much pressure and propaganda aimed at the White House as I had in this instance. The persistence of a few of the extreme Zionist leaders actuated by political motives and engaging in political threats disturbed and annoyed me. India, which voted against the partition, Nehru, who was the prime minister, said that Zionists had tried to bribe India with millions, and at the same time, his sister, who was the UN ambassador to the UN, received Mm -hmm. daily warnings that her life was in danger unless she voted correctly. Wow. She occasionally hinted that something might change in favor of the Zionists, but another Indian delegate said that India would vote for the Arab side because of their large Muslim minority, although they recognized that the Jews had a case, but they were under extreme pressure, which they rejected. The Liberian ambassador to the United States complained that the U.S. delegation threatened aid cuts to several countries, including their own. Harvey Firestone Jr. is the president of Firestone Natural Rubber Company that had major mm-hmm. holdings in Liberia, 
also put pressure on the Liberian government to vote for it, which they did. Right. The Philippines voted for, but in the days before the vote, their representative, General Carlos Romulo, said, we hold that the issue is primarily moral. The issue is whether the United Nations should accept responsibility for the enforcement of a policy which is clearly repugnant to the valid nationalist aspirations of the people of Palestine. The Philippines government holds that the United, the United Nations ought not to accept such responsibility. They were going to vote no. Then they got a phone call from Washington and they changed <laughs> their vote. He was recalled and they changed their vote to yes. Wow, that's power. Haiti ended right. up voting for, but they were promised a $5 million loan if they voted for it. France voted for, but shortly before the vote, their delegate to the United Nations was visited by Bernard Baruch, long-term mm -hmm. Jewish supporter for the Democratic Party, um, very powerful uh, guy in FDR's administration and then Truman's administration, uh, one of the creators of the United Nations. During uh, He'd been the economic advisor to Roosevelt um, and the US ambassador to the UN Atomic Energy Commission. Mm -hmm. He was privately a supporter of Ergun, the Jewish terrorist organization, and its front, the American League for a Free Palestine. He visited France and basically suggested that a French no vote would lead to a block on American aid to France. Part Ooh. of the Marshall Plan funding would be blocked right. if they voted no. I'd hate um, to see anything happen to mm. your money and supply. So they yeah, were yeah, yeah. they were against it, but changed their vote as well. So did Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, which <laughs> received similar phone calls from the US about Marshall Plan money. Right. Venezuela, the chairman of the delegation of Venezuela, uh, voted for it, but said they got pressure as well. Cuba, this is obviously pre-Castro. This is still when there was an American-led dictatorship, Batista's, Batista's dictatorship in Cuba. Yeah, They said they would vote against the partition in spite of pressure being brought to bear against us because they mm. could not be party to coercing the majority in Palestine. Um, the representative of Siam, Siam, Thailand, said that they cancelled their delegation after they received pressure as well. So, you know, the UN vote was dodgy, a lot of pressure brought to bear, as I'm sure all UN votes like this. Uh, right have this kind of thing going on, pressure behind the scenes to get people to vote this way or that. Bottom line is it was passed and it's been a clusterfuck ever since. And the Palestinian people weren't consulted. It was done against their wishes, without their consent, supposedly yes. in an era after World War II and the Atlantic Charter of the self-determination of peoples. This was mm -hmm. rammed down their throats. They have never... Yes been given a fair shot here and of course then after a series of wars happened israel took more and more and more and more land hundreds of resolutions against them the united nations uh, that, that they have ignored and with the support of mostly the united states and the security council 
they have avoided any consequences. And the US continues to give them billions of dollars a year and support them to the hill like they are now and blame the victims. It's classic victim blaming here. It's like yeah. blaming blaming the victims of a of a rape, basically. Right. And if I could be oh. Captain Obvious for a second, uh, and I'll just make this real quick. Um, when America put all that pressure and we used our economics and we used our political cloud, all that stuff, you know why it was easy for us? They would be over there. Yes, it's an un- whatever, it's, a, it's an unpopular thing or whatever, but it's over there. We're okay with that because it's over there. Yeah. Now, Lex Friedman, uh, yeah. one of my favorite podcasters, particularly when it comes to science and technology-related stuff these days, uh, he went mm-hmm. to uh, Gaza a couple of years ago and did some interviews with people in the streets. Mm. Um, he's Russian by heritage. Uh, I, I I want to play some of these clips because it's you know you don't often get to hear the Palestinian people speaking in their own words, right. um, and I thought this was worth us all listening to. You have to know something, yeah. Everybody here, any human being in this area or in all the world, not against peace. Everybody like life. Even Hamas in Gaza, they like life. They like peace. But peace, not like... Sorry, these interviews are in the West Bank, not in Gaza. West Bank. What you want. What of sir? If I want to buy something from you, mm-hmm. if I get it for your price, and I am happy for your things, I won't buy it. So our situation here, what's going with the Israeli, we are not against of Israel as people, Jewish. We are against of occupation. If you remember what's happened with Russia and Ukraine. Look... One year, Russia, they have a problem, and they are afraid from NATO come to close to, they're going inside Ukraine. All the world and all the arming of the world against Russia. How come I am refugee in my land? Why I am lost my house? Did I make something for Israel? Did I, uh, did my, uh, Hitler was my cousin? Did I make anything for the Jewish in the world? My, me and my family and the Palestinian. Do you have hope for peace? My age is 50 years. I have seven kids. No hope. If I told I have hope, I'm Jew. And if you want to say the truth, there is no justice in the world. If you are strong, everybody afraid from you. If you are not, everybody kill you. They make you like this by your foot. That's what's happening. There is no peace, my friend. If you want to see the peace come to our camp where I live, you will cry. You will cry. You see our peace. What are the conditions like in the in the camp? My friend, they're waiting for water. Water. You know what's been water? Yeah. In Europe, the dog, he lived in, in good condition. Dog, animals. How come a human being not have water, water to drink? I asked you about anger. What about love? You got love in your heart? Well, I love everybody, even the Jewish. They kill us. They destroy uh, our houses. I'm not looking to fight. I'm not looking to kill. I am against violence. We love your kids to live in in good condition. The Israeli side and the Palestinian. We are against violence. We don't want to see more blood. We want to destroy this wall. You come to me, I come to you. That's it. That's my hope. Thank you, my brother. English not so nice. That's pretty good. 
just one of a number of interviews. Wow. It's called Lex Friedman Speaks to Palestinians in the West Bank. There's a number of interviews, half a dozen like that. I highly recommend checking it out. It's um it's it's powerful stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, that was very two hours in. Oh my God. What do you want to do now? Let's talk about the voice referendum in Australia. Um just briefly, uh last weekend we had this referendum referendum to change the Australian constitution to give the First Nations people a voice to parliament. Now, the what this was going to be was a legally protected entity written into the constitution, so it's very difficult mm-hmm. to, to get rid of, right. where Indigenous Australians would be able to communicate to federal parliament their perspectives, their views, their desires on any legislation that affected them. The reason this was requested, you know, there was a group of Indigenous leaders that asked for this to happen some years ago. We don't have a treaty with our First Nations people. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution that protects them. Yeah, we're we're backwards. It's appalling. Um, The reason they wanted this is because there have been various Indigenous uh, bodies created in the past to perform this function. But whenever they say something that uh, a government, typically a conservative government of the day doesn't like, they just disband the voice, the, disband the body and create a new one helmed by people that will agree with what they want. Because mm-hmm. right? they can. This yeah. has happened many times over the years. So they wanted something enshrined that couldn't be dismantled easily. It mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the current federal government, the Labor government, went to the polls during our last election. One of their campaign promises was they would hold a referendum on this. We had it, and it was overwhelmingly defeated. Uh, there was Jesus. this fear campaign uh, right. by the no camp, mostly run by conservative politicians, Trump-style no campaign, and it, and it won. And, you know, I spent weeks talking to friends and family, uh, listening to their arguments why they were going to vote no, and talking them through my thought process mm-hmm. and, and and getting them to change their vote. But it wasn't enough because, uh, you know, I, I couldn't reach enough people. But right. I want to, like, it's too late now, and I was going to talk about this on the bullshit filter before the vote. We didn't get around to doing one. Not that it would have made any difference because no one listens to this. But um, for those people who do. do listen to it, I want to re-explain the way that I think about these things and how I came to my conclusion during this, because I think it's a it's a guide for dealing with these situations. This is the epistemology and heuristics thing I talked about before. Now, in this case, what is the uh, you know what domain? When it comes to epistemology, you have to work out what domain is this, and how do we determine what is true in this domain? It's in the it's in the domain of social justice, right? Right. This is a social justice issue. Now, you know, when you determine what is true, how do we determine what is true, what is factual, what is the best course of action when it comes to a social justice issue? It's different from science. Like when we were talking, when we were doing the COVID shows a few years ago, and I was doing epistemology, right? right? I was mm-hmm. saying, well, when it comes to science, the way that we determine what is most likely to be true is through the 
consensus of the expert scientists working in this field. When it comes to pandemics or epidemics, you look at epidemiologists. So, you know, you, that's how we determine what is like most likely to be true is you turn to the bodies of professional epidemiologists who do this for a living and you look right. at what they're saying, the people who are the experts in this domain. Uh, and, you know, we would, we would turn to those organizations. And particularly, you don't want, again, you don't want individuals. You want bodies with a long history right. of honesty and integrity that can be trusted, that don't seem to be, you know, just created yesterday by some dodgy organization as a front for a policy or for a mm -hmm. particular uh, interest group. Right. Social justice, it, it's a bit similar. So, you know, I think this is a social justice issue. So the two organizations I would turn to, groups of people, to determine, like this is a complex issue. There are a lot of views for and against, and there are a lot of individuals for and against. And you can say, well, this indigenous person says this, and this indigenous person says that. Um, this legal scholar says one thing. This constitutional scholar says another thing. My thought process was, okay, who is most directly impacted by this? Of course, right. it's the Indigenous people in Australia. And so you go, okay, well, what do they as a group want? Yeah, the majority. Despite the fact that the whole idea was crafted by a group of Indigenous leaders in the first place, there were polls done of Indigenous people around how they were going to vote. And the polls said that between 80 to 86% of them, depending on the poll, would vote for it there were there were a minority they had concerns against it that it wasn't going far enough they actually wanted to hold out sure. for a treaty or right. that they didn't trust governments to implement it correctly etc cetera, etc cetera. but the vast majority said they would vote for it mm -hmm. so that's one thing the people that it most impacts want it to happen right the second group because it's a social justice issue my mind is okay who are the experts on social justice issues in australia who are the bodies who are the organizations that are experts on social justice issues well it would be the australian human rights commission it would be the australian branch of amnesty international it would be those sorts of organizations that do human rights for a living Mm -hmm. And so you turn to those and go, well, what do they say about this? Are they saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing? Are they for it or against it and why? And you read what they have to say. It's not difficult to look up Human right. Rights Commission or Amnesty International and see what they have to say. Across the board, the human rights organizations in Australia were for it. The, the, the credible ones that have been around for a long time. There were probably, you know, some fly-by-night ones that were fake, you know, fronts created by yeah. people against oh, it. Yeah. But those that have been around a long time that we turn to for all sorts of human rights issues were for it. So to me, it was simple. If the Aboriginals want it, the Indigenous people want it, if the human rights bodies say, yes, this is an important step, it's a good step, yeah, it's not everything, but it's a good step in the right direction – to help deal yeah. with the issues that are facing these people, then that's good enough for me to vote for it. I don't need to listen to 400 different pundits. I don't need to <laughs> become an expert on the issues. I right. look at what the experts who are credible in this domain have to say. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, 60% of Australians did not come to that conclusion and they voted against it. And I have to say, I have never been more embarrassed to be an Australian than I have been this week. It was absolutely appalling. I had hoped mm. when we all agreed to approve gay marriage a couple of years ago that we would have the same sort of enlightened progressive attitude to this, which wasn't going to cost us anything. Yeah. It wasn't going to take away anything. Uh, but the no campaign, the fear campaign was effective in just discompobulating people and scaring people. And um, people just made a horrendous decision. And yeah, as I said, I'm just extremely embarrassed and ashamed and appalled by my fellow countrymen and women this week. I'm disgusted. And quite frankly, I can't wait for AI to take over. As I said, I think the human race is on. done. Yeah. yeah. Stick a fork yeah. in us. We're done. This uh, is as good. As yeah. we can do. I mean, that Australians good. listening who voted no, you probably don't if you listen to this show. Although I know, you know, you never know. My 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 friend Trevor, who hosts the Iron Fist podcast, who's been a guest host on this many times, told yeah. me that he was voting no for reasons that made absolutely no sense. And he's usually very progressive. And I went out to lunch with him, listened to his arguments. They made completely no sense to me. And um, you know, I'm embarrassed for mm. Trevor. I'm embarrassed for yeah. Trevor. I'm embarrassed for anyone who voted no. Um, so there you have it. Will it? I guess it will be a minimum of years before in, anybody even thinks about holding another one of these votes, or is generations. it a running done? Generations. Yeah. I mean, this so thing costs than I, I don't know, 400, 500 million to run the referendum. Oh, Soundly right. defeated. Right. Uh, so we won't like, have another one in my ahead. lifetime. And by the time yeah. you know I'm dead, Fox well, I won't like, ever die. I mean, right. The AI will have taken over before we ever need to do this. So right. artificial general intelligence will have taken over and hopefully it'll do a better job at social justice yeah. than my Australian country folk willing to do. So really, yeah. to all Australians who voted no, you should be fucking ashamed of yourselves. And I am ashamed for you on your behalf. If it makes you feel any better, one of the first things the AI is going to say is going to go, look, I got to be honest with you. You all look alike to me. I can't tell the difference. And that's the whole point. So anyways, um, I see your shame and embarrassment. I don't know if I can raise you. Maybe if I can match you. So here we go. Um, dysfunctional house 101. So, uh, the last time we almost had a government shutdown, I think it was last month. We have so many, it's hard to keep up. We, it was like within hours. It's like, yep, everybody get ready. They were sending out the memos telling people not to show up for work because you're not going to get paid. Uh, so last minute shutdown. And at the last minute, McCarthy and Biden work out some kind of deal and they decide to keep the government open. They're going to pay uh, things for another 45 days. Yay. Anyways, so clearly that pissed off Matt Gates of Florida, who put forward a motion to oust McCarthy. And as you probably remember, McCarthy had to have 15 votes to get the speakership. And one of the conditions that he put in was like, look, one person, I will allow one person to bring this up and you could all vote on me. Uh, that was the deal that he had to make. So it turns out that Matt Gates puts up the motion, eight Republicans plus all the Democrats vote, and suddenly McCarthy is out. This is on, I believe, October 3rd. And 
for the first time in American history, the Speaker of the House gets kicked, uh, kicked down the road, gets kicked in the ass. Oh, inside note, you might hear my dog who really wants to contribute to the show. Anyway, so, so he's out. So, um, why did the Democrats do this? You can say it was good. It was bad whatever. But at the end of the day, the Democrats know that McCarthy to a degree, a big degree is a Trump man, but McCarthy also blamed, put all the blame for the almost shutdown on the Democrats. And they said, you know what? Fuck us. Fuck you. And so they voted against them. So anyways, so a couple of weeks go by, the House can't do anything without its leader. The way the House works is it's very rigid, and uh, the, the, the Speaker of the House is the third person on the line for the presidency, so it, it has a lot of rules. So a couple of weeks go by, Steve Scalise, one of the uh, Republican uh, House representatives, tries to run. This is on October 12th. He doesn't get anywhere. He did win an internal Republican vote, but when it comes to the floor, he can't get the 217 votes. Jim Jordan, who doesn't like wearing ties or jackets, and that's his shtick. Uh, I could think of something better, maybe read a book, decides to throw his hat into the ring. To make a long story short, he has two votes. He loses both. One is on uh, the 17th. Uh, the other one's on October the 18th yesterday. And he, he lost the second vote by even more votes. So clearly it was going in the wrong direction. So they take this guy from North Carolina, Patrick T. McHenry who's a Republican, they make him the temporary whatever speaker, absolutely no powers, can't do anything. So Jim Jordan has a second vote and he's about to have a third vote. And he goes, you know what? I've counted up. I can't, I can't win this. I can't win this. I changed my mind. Maybe we can give McHenry some more powers uh, and we can actually get things going again. You know, we want to fund Israel. We want to fund Ukraine. We want to do some other things. The government's going to shut down next month. It's kind of important. Um, so Jordan is like, I'm out. Wait, one, no, three, two, one. Three hours later, he goes, no, I'm back in. I'm back in. We are going to have a third vote. I'm just not sure. But I got to go threaten. I, I got to go talk to some people first. As you've probably heard in the news, uh, House of Repres uh, Representatives and their spouses were getting, I don't want to say death threats, but they were getting strongly worded emails, messages, texts whatnot about you better vote the right way for Jordan or, you know, something unfortunate may happen to you or your family or the family dog. I don't know. So that's turning a lot of the Republicans off. The whole thing's a shit show. What's going to happen next? I can honestly tell you, not only do I not know, but no one knows because this is uncharted waters. We've never had a speaker removed before. McHenry will just go on. They'll just keep doing votes. Um, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, some people might want to try to give him more powers, but even the Republicans are against that. They're embarrassed, or they should be embarrassed, but they're not. They're so dysfunctional, they're not even functional enough to be embarrassed. Who knows what's going to happen? But it's not like it's a big deal. Like I said, we've got a couple wars going on. The government's going to shut down again. The holidays are coming up, and we've got no government. So uh, I, I see your racism and I match your racism and I add on incompetence. Uh, so let, let the games begin. It's just a fucking shit. You're embarrassed. I'm fucking humiliated. So, but that's the America that we've all come to know and love. Light stage capitalism, my friends. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what, come on, AI, come on, AI, roll a seven. I don't, I don't. Well, that's I'm it. Done. There's your yeah. two hours for this. Yes. Month. Leave uh, us alone. <laughs> for the, until next month.
Till next Yeah. Leave us alone. Bullshit. 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 Bullshit.